Hi, everyone, and welcome to the season-ending episode of the From the Hack podcast. Today, our guest is the man, the myth, the tweet-storming legend, Devin Haru of CBC Sports, who joined us as he continued his postseason media blitz. Our goal during the interview was not so much to go over results or to recap the season, but to discuss some of the better moments and stories that Devin covered in what was a tremendous curling season. But first, Canadian musician and non-curler extraordinaire Jimmy Reed plays us into the podcast. Devin, I want to start with a big picture question. When you were contemplating your curling coverage schedule prior to the season, did you really have any idea of the journey that the athletes you were covering would take you on during the season? It has been emotionally exhausting, Frank. Um, And I could have never prepared myself because I don't think I knew what I was getting into. Look, I'm a curling fan. I would call myself a casual curling fan up until a couple of years ago when I'm not going to say I got thrown into this by any means. I saw an opportunity and I knew what I thought I could bring to the curling landscape, but I guess I didn't know how much curling had evolved, how professional it had become and how diehard the fans are and how they just want more and more and more. And so when I looked at sort of what this season was going to look like and talked to my editors and you know, it started early. I made that pitch to go to the Everest event in Fredericton. That's August. So it literally went from August till April, and I'm exhausted. But what a journey it was, and uh, so many different highs and lows. And, yeah, it was, a, it was an emotional roller coaster, and I am objective, of course, but there are moments in the middle of really intense games where you can't help but feel what those athletes are feeling. So I felt it all, and uh, hopefully some people felt like they were a part of it as well. As I mentioned in the intro, what I want to focus on in this interview are some of the moments or stories during the curling season that may not have received as much attention as the final results, but moments that you'll remember from the 2017-2018 season. I want to start in early November, when it was finally time for the Olympic pre-trials in Summerside. Now, the record books will forever show that it was Team Morris and Team Botcher on the men's side and Team McCarvel and Team Tippin on the women's side who were the teams that won those final spots in the Olympic trials. However, what many of us who were watching this event intently will remember the most about the pre-trials in Summerside are all the tiebreakers. You were there in person. Can you take us back briefly to what was a pretty chaotic start to the quote-unquote Olympic stretch of this year's curling schedule? You know, I got to admit, when you sent me a note to sort of prepare uh, and feel like I was cramming for a university interview like I did throughout my career for an exam, I thought back to Summerside and it is such a blur. And probably, Frank, because of the bizarre nature of it and the craziness that unfolded there. I mean, what was it? What pool was it where I think there were five teams all tied at three and three? I'll never forget it. Curling Canada ran out of threes. You know where they put up the scoreboards in the in the foyers of all the event places and manually changed the numbers. They ran out of threes 
because so many teams were tied at three and three. I can't even, I'll be honest, I can't even remember all of the teams that were in that mess. All I'll remember is the nightmare of those tiebreaker games starting, I think first Rocks flew at like 11.45, 11.50 p.m., the extra end game that ended just before 3 a.m., uh, BuzzFeed, or no, pardon me, was it Deadspin even picked up the pandemonium that unfolded. It was just so bizarre. But, you know, I should point out there were a lot, I mean, obviously there were a lot of unhappy people about the format and how that sort of all shook down. Not only the tie-breaking situation, but the fact that somebody like Glenn Howard went undefeated and then Brandon Botcher, who I believe had a 500 record in the round robin, comes in and, and beats them. It just you know, there, that's a conversation that will continue to evolve, not only from that situation, but, of course, when you look at the new formats for the Briar Scotties and World Championships where you had mediocre teams making it all the way to semifinals. I digress. That being said, the tiebreakers were crazy. Right after even the men's round robin, John Morris, I'll never forget it, lost his mind, Frank. I didn't tweet about it because he was pretty heated. But there was all of this confusion behind the scenes with Curling Canada and the curlers trying to figure out what teams were going to be and what tiebreakers, uh, last shot draw to the button, who was where, uh, and Morris was irate. There was a big sort of confusion about him thinking he was through because of his cumulative score on the last shot draw, and then them all texting the curlers and there being an error. He ran up into the booth. There was an exchange. It was so you're getting some exclusive access here, Frank. But it was bizarre. I'll never forget it. And of course, you know, and people who follow me know, I have PTSD when it comes to tiebreakers at a curly bond spill <laughs> because of it. Um, but what a way to start the season, right? Let's move on to the Olympic trials in Ottawa. It was clear from the day that I launched the From the Hack podcast at the start of the 2015-2016 season that the one goal that each of the elite Canadian teams had was to secure a spot in the Olympic trials in Ottawa. During the week in Ottawa, we saw reactions and emotion from players on the ice, in the media scrums, and behind the scenes that you will not see at any other event except perhaps the Olympics themselves. I'm not sure if you felt the same thing, but what struck me about the trials from the outset was that you could cut the tension in that arena with a knife from the practice sessions onward. Like, they didn't even wait until they got midweek or the end of the week. From the practice sessions onward, you could feel the tension in that building. So what the curlers told me in advance of that is that you would watch players and you would watch teams melt down because of the pressure. And I love I'm dramatic. I know I'm dramatic, but I thought, okay, you're being a little dramatic here. Like, take a deep breath. Like, it's not that big of a deal. And then you got there, and you watched teams melt down, and you watched players melt down. I'll never forget it. I thought the best quote of it all was from Nicholas Adine, who was there watching, and flat out saying that he was stunned and, and shocked at how many misses were happening on the ice and then directly correlated it to the pressure. And I know we like to pat ourselves on the back as a curly nation to say, that's all part of the process. That's all part of earning your battle wounds and, and becoming the best curling team in the country to 
represent Canada on the world biggest stage. I'm not so certain I believe in that now. Like, that really messes with people's confidence. And, you know, I, I just, it, it was fascinating to watch from a storytelling perspective. But, you know, like, how many times will Brad Jacobs throw a rock through the house in an, in an extra end to win a game? Like, I don't know if we'll ever see that. But he, but he did it, right? And I think you have to directly chalk that up to the pressure of the moment. And you talk about super teams and, you know, constructing these teams. And, of course, we saw it, I think, in an unparalleled way, sort of this uh, free agent frenzy. We could have had a... We could have had a draft curling frenzy show, you and I, Frank, for everything that was going on. But the reality of it is, is this is it. Full stop. The four-year cycle. And, you know, I think there have been teams, you and I both know them, and a lot of curling fans know them, who took a lot of heat when they disbanded four years ago to form these teams. But I think that was just like a, a complete sign of things to come. And there had to be some of those players and skips and teams who made tough decisions. Now it's ruthless. You want to be sexy. You want to look good to sponsors. You want to have it locked down as quickly as possible so that those four years you can be the best you can possibly be. Because if you make it to the Olympics, you know, you're going to be made to a certain level for sponsorship. So the game has changed completely, and the pressure is unparalleled right now. One of the big stories during the trials was the play of Team Kerry. Tell us briefly about that team's journey during the Olympic trials, especially their skip Chelsea Kerry, and how impressive it was that her team made it all the way to the final, considering everything they had been through both during the season and at the trials themselves. Well, they did. They did have to deal with a lot and just sort of a general note on Chelsea Carey I have a ton of respect for her I think she's one of the most refreshing uh candid athletes I've ever had dealings with in my career uh and you can always count on a honest that's the word I'll use uh conversation with Chelsea Carey so I have a ton of respect for her look um Kathy Overton Clapton made uh made uh all uh, the world of difference for Chelsea because I think it's pretty well documented that on the ice she's a lot, <laughs> you know, and she brings it. And so I think what Kathy O was able to do was just, and I, and I dealt with Kathy and Chelsea a lot, both in a professional sense and away from the ice. And they talked about that influence and what that has meant in the evolution of Chelsea Carey. Like Kathy just being like, like the mom there and saying, you just go do your thing. I've got everything else. Just go through the rock, make the shot. And they, they curled brilliantly. They really did. They had a really strong week, number one seed, go into that game. And it really could have gone either way. We know that about that championship game. I'll never forget it. After that game, we're all standing in the scrum. And lo and behold, I... I'm asking the first question, and I was sort of stunned that I was going to be asking the first question after that game, uh, after that championship loss, and the way it happened, that missed double. And I, I, I was lost for words. Like, it's horrible to have to talk to an athlete after their Olympic dreams have just been crushed. But it was so honest of me, to be quite frank. And I just sort of fumbled and bumbled, and I just said, Chelsea, how are you feeling right now? <laughs> and she looked at me. I'll never forget it. 
dead square in the eye and she said, well, how do you think I'm feeling, Devin? <laughs> and I mean, good honor for giving it back to me. And then she gave this very eloquent answer. But um, what a year, what a year of tough knocks she's had. And the resilience to always come back after a loss, I think speaks a lot about character. But yeah, those trials are a grind. They'll chew you up, they'll spit you out. And she made it all the way to the last bite and just couldn't get the last shot. And um, it was really nice to see. There were so many moments of just real vulnerability and authenticity from her and that team and the way they sort of came together. Um, and I think a lot of people were hoping they would win, right? Because of that. You know, Devin, I have to agree with you. I've had the chance of covering Chelsea Carey for three seasons now, and I really do think she gets a bad rap uh, from many people. The fact that she was able to maintain her level of play at the trials, despite losing her grandfather halfway through the week, is something I'll remember about the trials in Ottawa long after I've forgotten who made the playoffs or who had a good or a bad week. Speaking of good weeks, you followed Team Holman quite a bit over the past few seasons. I realize that they were saying all the right things in the lead-up to the trials in their hometown, but how much pressure was that team really feeling at the trials in Ottawa? I can't even imagine. I really can't. And um, I know we'll be talking about what happened at the Olympics, and I thought that that pressure from the trials would have... I, I don't want to go as far as to say and the uh, the stress and the pressure going into the Olympics because it felt so monumental at the trials for them. I mean, look at like Rachel Holman grows up what a ten minute drive from the arena where they're going to try and realize their Olympic dreams. Like it was a stuff of fairy tales. It really was. All of the banners, all of the marketing, all of the programs, home and home and home and everywhere you went around that, this was their moment. And they did it. They really did it. And, and you know, the more time I spend with these teams, Gushu, Holman, Jones, you know, there's some, there's some familiar and there's some par- familiarity and parallels between what they do. And they all are really, really great at staying in their bubbles. So, you know, you look at what Gushu was able to do in St. John's. Well, they will talk ad nauseum about staying in their bubble and sort of deflecting everything else in the hoopla around it. I think in Ottawa, obviously, you could hide a little bit more, especially out in Canada, way in the middle of nowhere, which it should have never been. Anyway, it was there, and they stayed in their bubble. They rented a home. They cooked. They laughed. They kept it light. They did their thing. They came to the rink. They played. They went away. They just did it. They did it. They were pros. They were champions. And they did it in the biggest pressure cooker possible. So impressive to see them do that. And I really believed that that was going to to catapult them into greater things, you know, because it didn't start the way the, the way they wanted it to. They started, you know, 0-1 against Chelsea Carey. And I think everybody wanted to go, uh-oh. You know, of course, everybody wanted to go, uh oh, because, you know, they hadn't had the strongest start to the season on the slam tour and whatnot. And then they roll into this, you know, basically being sort of presented this here. Here it is on a platter. Now go and win it. They had to work for it. They did it. 
and they earned the right to wear the Maple Leaf at the Olympics. One of the teams that you covered quite closely over the past season was Team Cooey. For a player that will go down as one of the all-time greats, very little is known about Kevin Cooey himself. Can you talk about the importance of his team's win at the trials, not only for him, but for his family and for the people of the Northwest Territories, where he's originally from? Northern pride, being able to get to go to Yellowknife and spend time with the Cooey family and, and people in Yellowknife. You know, Frank, I come from a news background. I've spent a lot of time in northern Alberta and northern Saskatchewan and similar places and settings and atmospheres. The thing that I find fascinating about curling specifically as a sport and for the personalities and the players to gain is that it is so intimate because these players are mic'd up and we get to see them all the time. And people form these opinions about curlers because they think they know them. They, they hear them conversing. You and I have probably had conversations with our TV with the curlers when they're discussing shots, like, let's be honest. And so you believe that you know these people. But I think Kevin Cooey is a very misunderstood individual. I know he is because of some of what I've dealt with in my curling career. And I wanted to sort of shed a light on Kevin Cooey and his family and the North to get a better sense of who this person in this place was. And you get up there and you talk to his family. You go into the pubs and you go into the restaurants and you go dog sledding and you go to Kevin Cooey's high school and you meet his first girlfriend and on and on and on. And you start people together a very layered individual. You talk to some of his teachers and realize that he was always sort of this quiet, reserved person, um, but that he also has a personality, that he likes to joke around and that he likes to have fun. Um, just the complete aside, his first girlfriend told me this hilarious story. So like the Cooey family, right? She remembers going and playing at one of their boxing, bonds, boxing day bonspiels, a big one up there that they do every year. And she was so damn nervous. And she goes, she had never curled in her life, Frank. She goes, and Kevin's yelling at her to sleep and yelling. And the family is yelling at her. She was so distressed and so anxious and upset that they yelled at her the entire time she couldn't get over it. She never curled within the game. I thought it was the most hilarious thing in the world. And then, you know, she was telling me about how they they still talk to this day and laugh about that and how proud she she is of him. But that that was such a great moment. And then, you know, obviously uh, a story I'm very proud of is is having Fred Cooey really open up to me in the middle of uh, the Yellowknife Curling Club one very cold December night about his his battle and his trials and tribulations and, and real struggles. Uh, surviving residential school. And he, he was proud, chested, tears in his eyes, sharing that story about how it shaped him and how it shaped him as a man and a father and wanting to provide a life to his family that he never got to experience. And then to see Fred Cooey run up and down that concourse with that flag at the Olympics, despite it not going their way, Whew, I still get chills. It still makes me emotional. Um, that is the power of sport. Those are the stories I, I want to tell. And to this day, uh, Frank, I still get notes from people saying, I didn't follow curling or I didn't know about Kevin Cooey or these sorts of sentiments until I read that. And I think that's a power of storytelling in, in sport. 
is that when we get to understand these people on a deeper level, how can you not want, maybe not cheer for them, but follow their journey? And what a journey that trip to Yellowknife and, and meeting the Cooey family was. They may never admit to this publicly, but for several elite curlers, the Canadian mixed doubles trials were essentially a plan B. And it was apparent at the start of the trials in Portage that some of the players just weren't feeling it. Was there a point during the week where you really got a sense that some of these players turned the corner, if, the, if you will, and finally told themselves, okay, now it's on? That was a narrative I wanted to push. Some didn't buy it. Others did. And so when you say that elite curlers weren't ready to admit that they weren't taking mixed doubles, the first ever Olympic trials and mixed doubles seriously, they were actually ready to talk about the fact that they weren't. I'll never forget Brad Goose talking like, like jokingly laughing about how he prepared for mixed doubles, basically lying around with one of his daughters on his chest on the couch and then watching mixed doubles on YouTube and laughing at the, the mixed doubles he was watching because it wasn't the highest quality. Like they were very candid. Mike McEwen to this day, I don't even think to this day he still <laughs> fully appreciates the game. I just think it's not for some people. And so, yeah, I mean, that was what was the burning question for me is you work so hard for these for this team birth because you believe that is how you are supposed to go to the Olympics. And then all of a sudden, like in two years or less, you're told that this new discipline, you can also win an Olympic gold medal. Look, credit to John Morris and Caitlin Laws, and it might've been the reason why they won. They're also pretty damn good at curling, but they, from the moment go, and we both know John and Caitlin. Well, like, I don't know if you'll meet, two more competitive people in the world and then you know you combine forces and it's like whoa but from the moment they got there they understood what the prize was and I'll never forget Jeff Stoughton talking to me about it kind of saying I hope people don't miss this that they because he put it so brilliantly in saying there are going to be elite curlers sitting at home in February watching probably a Canadian team compete for a medal and going damn did I ever miss the boat on this one? But the turning point for me was like the Wednesday or the Thursday of the week when you got to the down to the round of 16. And then you could feel the intensity rise. And then, the, the you know, I always joke that I've watched way too much curling when I don't, you know, I'm usually tweeting. So I have my head down. And if I'm about to miss a shot, I can tell by the tone in whatever player's voice how close or important the shot is just through the tone of their voice. And you could certainly hear a different intensity. It was like that Thursday turning point playoffs. Okay. Now we understand where it was. And then it was just awesome. Like the weekend was awesome. And now we know how wildly popular the sport is. And when you compare mixed doubles to the team game, I mean, the tweets were flying. People were like, bring back the eight ends, you know, the five rocks and end, the rapid fire, the fast pace, the communication, the frenzy, the throw a rock, get up and sweep it, the power play, the whole bit. It's cool. You can't compare it as far as I'm concerned. But what a blast watching the team sort of go, oh, wait, I can be an Olympic champion. And then things really heating up. Such a cool evolution, Frank. 
I want to jump ahead a little bit to the semifinals of the mixed doubles competition at the Olympics. Canada was up 3-2 to two at the break, but it should have been a much bigger lead. Caitlin Laws, who'd been playing brilliantly all week, struggled throughout the first half of that game. And at the fourth and break, John Morris did something interesting. He did an interview with Colleen Jones, their colleague at CBC Sports, where he basically told Canada to relax and that Caitlin would figure it out. It was basically Johnny Moe giving the country a pep talk, and I think it was one of those moments that did not get as much attention as it deserved back here in Canada. You were on site covering the mixed doubles competition in Pyeongchang. How did that moment play out for you from inside the venue? I think we're all in trouble when John Morris is a voice of reason, right? (laughs) He told me that too. Look, what a coming of age, let's put it that way, for John Morris. And I don't think we shouldn't, I, I think we should make as much as possible about what happened in that semifinal game because I think I wrote about it a lot. The Olympics were a blur for me. (laughs) But I think I wrote about it a lot and hope I articulated how brilliant it was to watch Caitlin Laws and John Morris come together as a team. And let's not forget, Caitlin Laws carried that team for the first part of that bond spill because John Morris was not his best. But yes, in that semifinal game, John gives this pep talk, this rah-rah, a little bit of tough love. Caitlin Laws curled 41% in that game. And it, it, like I think it was 3-2 for Canada at the fourth end break, and it could have been way more, as you put it. And I'm sitting on the media bench along with the Canadian media and going, is this how this is really going to go? Because this is how this, this narrative is shaping up, a game of missed opportunity. John gives the pep talk of all pep talks and then finds, I think it was in the seventh end, she made a pistol and they, you're right, they just ran away with it. They found a way to buckle in. And you also have to consider that Norway was the only team they had lost to in the first game of the championship. So that was playing on their minds too. There was a lot going on psychologically. As I get to know mixed doubles more, it's that psychological edge uh, in that, that game specifically because there's only two of you and there's nowhere to hide that if it gets going sideways, you're done. Game over. And I can see it. And I watched it over and over. They did it. And I think it's one of the great stories that will stick with me always. And I'll never forget that post-game interview. Uh, I know he, he John talked to Colleen in the break, but they came over to us in the mix zone. We got them before the rest of everyone. And they were emotional. And the way they looked at each other and just sort of felt this trust, uh, it, was, it was a beautiful thing. And I'll, I'm seeing it right now as I think about that, just how kind they were to each other. Because that can be so awkward, Frank. Like, I think about my dealings on a day-to-day basis with other people and getting to know in a professional setting, and you don't want to rock the boat or say the wrong thing. Now you're on the ice, millions of people watching. How are you going to communicate? We all like to believe we know how we're going to react but then when things get real how are you really going to handle it and they did it they did it magically and they went on obviously to win the gold medal because of it I don't think we can make too much about how important that was and talking to John Morris's mother after the game what a proud mother she was to see her son handle a moment so well when all we've thought about John Morris in the past is a hothead who breaks brooms And then all of a sudden, he's a gentle voice of reason. And that, to me, is a really awesome thing. 
It became clear fairly early in the women's competition at the Olympics that Team Homan had not brought its A game to Pyeongchang. Was there a specific moment where you could really start to tell that Team Homan was in trouble? I don't think it was a specific moment, Frank. I think it was a gradual kind of like water's coming in the boat and we're, we have little buckets and we're sort of scooping the buckets out, but the water just keeps coming. And um, it was really difficult to watch. I, I'll take this moment to say that what happened there and covering that team is, um, is one of the more difficult things I've had to cover in my career. And I didn't think that would be the case because I've covered some really horrific stories. So I don't want to take that away from what I've been able to do in the past in a new sense. But from a sporting perspective, uh, it was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking because there you are with a team that is so destined for greatness, believes they're destined for greatness, are world champions, undefeated, Scotty's champions, high of their lives, now their biggest moment, their dreams realized, and they start 0-3. And I try to put myself in their perspective about what that would be like. And I still don't know if I can get to that level or go to that place because that's a lot. But, but like when the lights go out and you're in Pyeongchang and you're one of those four ladies and you're, and you're lying there and you're thinking about how you imagined everything to go and then the way it's going, oh, that's a lot. And they battled. They really did try and battle. But it just wasn't their week. It wasn't their best curling. I guess maybe for me, the thing that really sort of triggered me and sort of caught my attention was in those post-game interviews, and I know athletes are sort of trained to be level, to stick to the speaking points, but, you know, they, they believed they were close, and I think that was important, but I, I really wanted to see some fire. I wanted to see Rachel or I wanted to see somebody just say, something like just on blast right shake things up and and I never saw that maybe maybe that's just me being a selfish journalist for this story and I'll be transparent about that but I wanted to see somebody just say we need to do something we need to change something but I'm not them and I don't know what was going on and it was just so difficult and um, there was so 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 much pressure on them and, uh, yeah, so, so that, that's a long way to say I don't think there was ever one, uh, one pivotal moment. It was more of a gradual, like, shots they would normally make they were missing, and you kept thinking that there was going to be a big moment, like a big shot that would turn things around, and it never came. And that's where I went, uh-oh. You introduced your audience to Paralympian Marie Wright while you were covering the Paralympics in Pyeongchang. Tell us about her story and about the incredible season she just had. I love talking about Marie Wright. I think people know that. And what a person to talk about. I don't think she can get enough attention. So how I came across her story is I made sort of a pact with myself uh, when I knew I was going to be staying not only for the Olympics but the Paralympics that I wanted to bring as much attention to the Paralympians as I possibly could. I was one of like our small group of seven on the ground for CBC at the Paralympics. And I just felt some added pressure because these people are warriors. They are 
warriors, and I wanted to tell their stories. So there I am. I, I tried to, you know, stay in shape, Frank, because I'm on the road a lot. So I was at the gym. I took my media guide, and I'm on the treadmill in the media center, and I'm rifling through all 55 athlete profiles and making notes on the treadmill and hopefully not falling as I'm doing this. And I get to Murray Wright's page, and I'm looking over from Saskatchewan, from Moose Jaw. That piques my attention. My mother was born in Moose Jaw, so I'm excited about this. And then I'm reading that she has four daughters. And I think it said single mother of four daughters. I think it said that. And I went, what? A paraplegic who's a single mother of four daughters. And it just it caught my attention. I put a star in my, in my media guide by it. So I show up at the rink while they're practicing the next day, and I talk to Curling Canada people. Just I'm not going to go straight to Marie and say, like, what's the deal with this? Poking around, and I find out about her story. And, and of course, we know what it is. I'll try and be succinct. 30 years ago uh, on a rural Saskatchewan dirt road where they were living in a small town, uh, Marie Wright gets in this horrific car accident with a, with a truck. Her youngest daughter at the time, one years old, in the car, her next youngest daughter in the vehicle, and her two uh, nieces, I believe, her niece and a nephew, so four of five of them in the vehicle. Uh, Marie Wright is left paraplegic in the accident. Her daughter, one years old at the time, uh, suffers a serious head injury in a home today because of it. And to make a horrific situation worse, two years or less after that accident, as Marie Wright is rehabbing and physio and has four young kids and taking care of her daughter. She spent 13 months with her daughter in the hospital, also recovering. Her husband leaves her. I don't want to give him any attention, and I didn't in any of my stories. Moving on. Marie Wright, like the champion she is, just rises up. And I met her two daughters who were there, her two oldest daughters who were there, tears in their eyes every time Marie came out to the ice at the Paralympics. And, of course, I'm fast-forwarding because it took a lot to get there. 57 years old at the Paralympics, living out her dreams, her daughters there, like, unreal. And this smile, we know the smile of Marie Wright. I bet you can see it in your mind right now. I can see it in my mind. I think a lot of Canadians can, too. Uh, she won over opponents with it. She won over me. She won over her teammates. She won over a country. And um, it's inspiring. She is somebody that I've gotten to know really well. Of course, there we were weeks later at, at the Nationals, the Wheelchair Curling Nationals, and she plays two of her Paralympic uh, teammates in the final. And Marie Wright becomes the first ever female skip to win a wheelchair national championship. And if you think you're having a bad day, think about Marie Wright. I've done it. No excuses. She's the champion, and I'm so glad I got to meet her and, uh, you know, share her story with more people. To be fair, many people were excited about the fact that the men's worlds were taking place in Las Vegas this season. You were there on site. What did you think of the Vegas experiment? I didn't like it. I'll just start by saying that. I think that the Continental Cup is perfect for Las Vegas because it's kind of gimmicky. It's only four days. If you spend more than four days in Las Vegas, you're a hurting unit. 
I can attest to that. A lot of the curlers can attest to that. Ten days of curling just isn't really going to sell in Las Vegas because you can't really market it as, as the four-day package, right? And I think, I think they thought it would just translate into, into the World Curling Championship. That all being said, I didn't mind going into a cold rink covering a game and then going by the pool and doing post-game interviews by the pool in a 30-degree temperature pool party patch, sun basking down, writing a story. I'll tell you what, I had to focus a little harder more than ever <laughs> filing those stories. Yeah, it was weird. And I just, you know, the ice conditions, Brad talked about it a lot, and credit to to Mark Linger and his crew. They really battled. But it just, there were just too many reasons why it shouldn't have, shouldn't have been there. And I think it took away from some of the curling. And it was weird, Frank. Like, I try and keep my distance from the subjects I'm covering. Um, and I stayed in a different hotel, but the Orleans Hotel was essentially attached to the arena. So there you have these Olympic curlers, elite curlers, professionals, basically like eating, sleeping, breathing with all of the fans. Like, you know how much I love Fred Gushu and his team. I, I mean, it's a joke now how much time I've spent with them. But I don't really want to go splashing around in the pool in Vegas with him and their families, <laughs> you know, and and. And people were, and it was kind of like, okay, well, this is what it is. It was fun. It just, it never felt like a world championship. Curlers said it. And and that's not to slam the organizers because they pulled it off and it was fun. But I think they just need to think twice about it. I have to tell you, Devin, I lucked out. I wasn't at the Men's Worlds in Vegas. I was at the Women's Worlds in North Bay. And I have to tell you that both the players that were there and the crowd in North Bay really stepped up. It was an unbelievable event. Uh, there were big crowds throughout the week. Uh, even on the morning draws, the place was packed. It was loud. There were some wonderful performances. Jamie Sinclair and her team from the U.S., uh, the Russians winning a bronze medal. Uh, and I got to tell you, in that final between Canada and Sweden, uh, when Jennifer Jones made a shot in the ninth to take a 6-4 to four lead, the place erupted, and I swear to God that uh, the building practically shook. And you know what? I think one of the moments I'll never forget about that World Championship wasn't even related to Team Jones or Canada. It was in the very next end. Here you had Anna Hasselborg, with, despite the fact that they're the Olympic champions, a relatively young team. They were playing in a... I use the word hostile environment, not because people were throwing things at the Swedes or anything silly like that, uh, but basically everybody in the building, except for the friends and family and coaches of Team Sweden, were cheering for Canada and Team Jones. Yet in the 10th end, after uh, Jennifer Jones made one of those shots that uh, people will talk about long after her career is done, Hasselberg came back and made a shot in the 10th end to tie the score 6-6. And I've never heard a building go from euphoria to so quiet so quickly. It was one of those take that Canada type of shots from a young skip who despite the fact that she is an Olympic champion now, you probably wouldn't expect that from such a young team. To be able to step up in that kind of environment and respond the way they did was very, very impressive. There are so many stories throughout curling history that now form curling lore, if you will. One of them from this season is that the team that won the 2018 Canadian Mixed Doubles Championship and went on to win bronze at the World Mixed Doubles Championship was formed during a discussion in the Briar Patch at the Briar in Regina. You are all over that story from the outset. Can you share how the Laura Crocker and Kirk Myers partnership was born? 
they're just so refreshing. They really are. They just they're two really great people and I had heard these rumblings that they that they had a conversation over a few beverages um, at the Briar Patch in Regina. Of course, Jeff Walker was going to be going to Las Vegas with Team Gushu, and so Laura Crocker was uh, going to have to find a new partner. And there they were. And uh, I asked them if they were drunk. And I said, on a scale of one to ten, where were you? And I think Kirk said three and Laura said four, but that the next morning they both texted each other to make sure they weren't drunk and that they were serious <laughs> about about what they said and so playing mixed doubles. And and again I just sort of go back, Frank, to that to that ability to be vulnerable and honest and communicate clearly and if you, you know, obviously I was in the Duke and I watched the way they evolved as a team and, and communicated, but then of course watching them in Sweden and in just hearing the respect they had for one another and the communication and it's like relationship one one. I know nothing about it, so maybe I'm not the good person to be talking about it, but there were words of validation and words of affirmation that they were sharing with each other on the ice. And it just gave them a lot of confidence. Unfortunately, Switzerland continues to be Canada's mixed doubles nemesis at the world championships uh, because they defeated Canada in that semifinal game. Of course, a year earlier, they stunned Reed Carruthers and Joanne Courtney with four in the last end to rip our hearts out in the gold medal game. That all being said, Laura Crocker, Kirk Myers, they rebound only hours after, a couple of hours in between that semifinal and bronze medal game, come out, play their hearts out, then to get messages with them, and I was in contact with them the whole time, to get messages from them after that game, just hear how much winning a world championship medal meant to them and the way they carried themselves and represented Canada. Of course, I wrote this story and told the story of them wearing the humble Broncos uh, patch on their knees. Everything about them, they were just great ambassadors, fun to watch. Thank goodness they had a few beverages in the past and formed a bond that'll last a lifetime. And finally, Devin, we've arrived at the end of the 2017-2018 curling season, a curling season where you personally grew your following exponentially through your wonderful coverage of the sport. I'm wondering if you started making plans about how you will go about covering the start of a new Olympic cycle starting next fall. Yeah, so I can uh, I can share some news that, uh, well, this shouldn't come as a shock to anyone, but uh, the CBC bosses were very happy with how how the curling coverage, from my perspective, went this year. Um, you know, when, when I'm out there and, and uh, I just think, it, I love doing what I do because of the fans. I don't know if I've ever met a more engaged, interactive sort of fan base in sports in my career, and that's what keeps me going. And so my bosses were happy, which means that uh, hopefully I'm going to be doing a lot more of this. We've already had sort of a debrief and a look-ahead meeting, and um, if everything goes as planned without sharing too much information, I will be at uh, more curling events next year, at least on the Slam Tour, and uh, be picking up... uh, Obviously, the, the, the big championships, Canadian and world championships, but uh, certainly being a bigger part of, of the slam coverage as well. And, of course, I, I don't think we should uh, overlook the fact that there's going to be this, um, this uh, new world curling four event series, right, that takes place uh, in China, starts in China in August. 
uh, and then goes kind of around the world, one in North America, one in Europe, and then back to Beijing, I believe, to finish. So that'll be fascinating. But I've also been writing um, some bigger, deeper features on the game, the analytics for the love of the game or the love of the money. I can share, actually, this week, um, I'm going to be on ESPN television, actually, talking about curling because of some of those articles. So that lets you know how much the game uh, has evolved and that the Americans and ESPN are paying attention as well. So it's, um, it's growing, it's exciting, and I'm not going anywhere. And that does it for our final episode of the 2017-2018 curling season. I'd like to thank Devin Haru for joining me, and also I'd like to thank each of you for listening today and throughout this season. We will be back occasionally over the summer with special reports and interviews, and we look forward to covering the start of a new Olympic cycle beginning in August. I'm Frank Rock, and this is From the Hack.